All right, this morning I wanted to continue with Hebrews, and uh, actually we are beginning at, with the first four, three verses here, but I kind of want to depart from uh, what the writer of Hebrews is doing, and uh, include what he's doing, rather, in a, a, in a larger picture of what I think is happening in the, in the New Testament. But let me read here verses 1 to 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, this is the, you know, this introduction of the theme of Hebrews. And it's the picture then of how Christ is going to fit into how God has spoken in the past through the fathers and in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Um, certainly we need to set what Jesus has done into the Old Testament, into these former speakings. But what we need to get clear is that uh, in Christ, we actually apprehend or understand those other things in a new way. Um, that Christ then is the final and full revelation of God. Here is, you know, Christ is God in the flesh. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation and so what he's conveying is in, in these opening verses is that uh, here we can say that uh, things are going to be completely changed up in terms of the way we interpret and understand. In the way that, in part, the way that Christ relates to Judaism, I would say, is the way he relates to all systems of the world. I don't mean this as an exact parallel, but what he's going to do in Judaism, he's going to turn it all upside down. Um, and what I mean by this, it's not the world, it's not the culture, civilization, even if it's a Jewish civilization, which is the definitional category, which is the determining category. And the church, you know, doesn't come along and join up and say, oh, well, we just, we'll just add on to this. It doesn't just embellish something that's already there. The rule of God in Christ is the basic category. And we have to change up all of our thinking accordingly. Uh, the rebellious cosmos is being put into subjection, is the picture in Hebrews. In principle, it's already a defeated cosmos. Christ has defeated death. He's bringing the world powers, the principalities and powers into subjection. You know, the Apostle Paul says we need to bring all things then uh, into subjection to Christ. That is partly a thought process that we're going through. The development of a high Christology is what's taking place in Hebrews bringing all things into subjection. Our job is the job of Paul, the missionary, you know, the evangelist. 
Our job then is to, in some way, interpret uh, the world as it may collide with Christ. Whatever that world, whatever that cosmology is, we need to show that Christ explains it. He governs it. And that he, in some way, is bringing it into subjection. So Christ, as the full and final word, is the frame of reference for understanding everything else. Now, I want to say this, but I fear being misunderstood. And that is, we can say Christ is the universal truth. But even to say that, it's not meant in the way that we usually mean it. It's not the universal truth of modernity. The sort of universal truth is one in which all things are in the process. In other words, it may not appear that way yet. What modernity would claim is that universal, rational truth does not come to us in history. You know, it comes to us in mathematical truths or in things that are not subject to time and history. You know, kind of the scientific truths of reason. And if this is the case, the claims of Christ and Christianity are lost to us. In other words, if what is being claimed is that God has spoken in a particular time and a particular place and a particular historical setting, that absolute universal truth has come to us in this time and in this place. Modern truth, modernity, secularism, however you want to describe it, is over and against the very foundation of Christianity. And so the Hebrews claim that the absolute truth, a final and full word, can be known in and through a particular person, in a particular historical social setting, is ruled out of court. In fact, Hebrews is specifically, though, aimed at countering a disembodied absolute knowing like we have in modernity. The way that Christ relates to Judaism... I think, is a way of understanding how he relates to secularism, how he relates to modernity. It is a system he overturns. Our tendency may be to let the world shape us, you know, to conform our faith to the modern understanding, to begin to deny the miraculous, to begin to deny the authority of Christ. But the opposite needs to to take place. We need to shape our world understanding in and through the lens that Christ brings so that all things are being brought into subjection to him. In Psalms that the writer quotes, he says, You made him a little lower than the angels. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet. And then it goes through and lists. Jesus the Son is is presented in terms of, you know, throughout Hebrews. He's tasted death for us all. He's defeated death. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. That through death he might render him powerless who has the power of death, that is the devil. The New Testament is not simply arguing that Jesus is true according to some standard. That he's changed up the standard. And I think that's the picture. He's defeated death. He's been raised from the dead. And this is an entirely new standard. 
This is an entirely new way of thinking. That Jesus is not simply true according to the standards of modernity or the standards of the typical worldview. But he changes that worldview. Christ is overturning the very limited possibilities of truth as they are marked out in various societies. The truth of Christ is one that is worked out in history, in the flesh. You know, this is what the writer is saying. Over and against the principalities and powers of this world. Jesus' ascension is the end point, the writer says, of the unshakable truth or kingdom established through the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. So Jesus as truth is a demonstrated truth, worked out in conjunction with sin, death, the reality of the parameters of the human world. So what we have in these opening lines of Hebrew, of Hebrews, and what we have in Christianity is a very particular, a very peculiar notion of the way in which truth works in which it can be known. Jesus is not known on the basis of the eternal truths of reason. That is, one plus one equals two. Now we just, last night we watched a documentary about uh, George Bull. The Boolean logic. Are you familiar, Larry, with Boolean logic? I wasn't either. He's the guy who gives us the digital age. He gives us, you know, just the, uh, you know, the cal- the the calculus of zero one. You know, that's used in computing. He lived in the eighteen hundreds in Ireland. He had no idea how his method. He was profoundly, deeply religious. Uh, a profound you know, a a thinker and Christian. And what he saw then in, even in Boolean logic, in other words, he recreates mathematics, uh, is then not something over and against belief, but something that is a confirmation of belief. What we have in the New Testament is an alternative mode, an alternative means of truth. God has now spoken to us in his son, but we only know what this means on the basis of Judaism. That is, we understand it in that context, even though it's going to change up that context. Truth has come to us in a very particular way. But this truth demonstrates itself in relationship to the world. In other words, it's not an abstract, disembodied, this you know de-worlded sort of truth the new testament demonstrates this i think we I, i'll go through about five ways and that's the sermon today i'll just go through very quickly and talk about these five ways five worlds including that of hebrews that christianity is confronting in the greco-roman jewish world it's going to speak into this pluralistic setting And I'm uh, referencing a thinker here, John Howard Yoder. This is Yoder's picture of it. He says, born in Aramaic-speaking Palestinian Jewry, praying and socializing and theologizing only in that small society and in its tongue, with its scriptures, the Messianic movement in two generations had reached the capital of the world and had produced a core body of literature in the trade and culture language of the Gentile world. That is, in going from Jerusalem to Rome, it's going to pass through 
all of these different language groups, all of these different worldviews. Jesus believers with a relatively smaller, this is still Yoder, more homogenous, poorer, less speculative, pretentious worldview moved with their hometown forms of faith into the encounter with peoples and meaning systems which have no place for their confident call to decision. The Jesus movement was utterly particular. The Hellenistic Roman world was classically pluralistic. To state what Yoder is, is saying, I think we could describe our own world as one that is pluralistic. One that is profoundly secular. One that in which no one can call for a confident knowing, a confident decisionism. And yet Christ enters into this world and transforms it. The addressees of the epistle to Hebrews, I think, is the first example of this. They had a settled cosmology. You know, angels at the top have access to the divine presence and they divine they they bear the word of god to the world and priests at the bottom you know are raised they mediate between the altar and the, the temple and the gifts and the sacrifices which can cover for sin that's their cosmology you understand what's happening in these first few verses he's saying yes and christ has come on come on the scene and he's greater than angels That is, he's God himself. Instead of claiming for Jesus his place just beneath the angels, the Messiah is declared to be above the angels, at the Lord's right hand, reflecting the divine nature in the very image, icon of God, upholding the universe itself. And yet, he says all of this, it's not that Christ isn't, you know he's not exempt from human limitations his perfection is not a divine timeless status but rather he cries out with prayers and supplications loud cries and tears he's fully assuming the priestly role in other words the highest and the lowest are brought together into christ He ends the claim of the priestly system, of the sacrificial system, of the ordering, the hierarchy, the cosmology of that community. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, the writer says, but we do see Jesus who was for a little while made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death. So it's not an argument that we possess the absolute truth in a a modernist sense. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It is a process that even in the book of Hebrews, we are realizing this. We have not yet been faithful to the end. We have not yet attained fully to this truth because that is not the way truth works in the world. It's a process that we ourselves continue to work out. And so the New Testament will consistently argue for the truth of Christ. Not as he fits into other true systems, but in the way he undoes them. In the way he is at both the beginning and the end of these systems. 
The other place in the New Testament is in, in Colossians, who they also had their cosmology. It's not a Jewish cosmology. The world is held together by a system of principalities and powers that emanate. You know, it's kind of the Platonic Aristotelian system. There is this emanation of systems. Uh, The visible fades into the invisible. Religious behavior, festivals, helps one to find his way, you know, as you're kind of working your way in and through the material universe to the spiritual universe. And visions and angelology also help to manipulate these powers. But Paul proclaims Jesus as uh, not as part of this cosmos, but as its Lord. The powers are not illuminated, appeased, manipulated, but they're subdued and broken by Christ. The believer risen with Christ has died to these principalities and powers. They're very specific things in the Colossian cosmology. That can be the case because the sun is the image of the invisible creator, holding all things together. They thought, oh, the principalities and powers. You know, if you would state this in modern terms, the mathematic principles, the Newtonian physics. But what it says is, no, Christ holds all things together. The second place, actually the third, is the vision in the book of Revelation, the vision of the apocalypse. It pictures a visionary, you know, language. No one is in sight able to break the seals on the scroll. And these scrolls contain the meaning of everything. And John weeps because no one is seen fit to break the seals. But then the lamb appears next to the throne and he's able to take the scrolls, the one who was slain, he's able to take them and he unsticks the scrolls and he unrolls them. That is what was not available outside of the meaning and you know revelation of all things are un- unfurled. Christ is not the one who brings us transcendent principles, truths from outside of history. But he's able to read these truths. He's able to interpret them. He is the wisdom and the language in Revelation, in Hebrews. The very nature of wisdom is the one that he relates to. It opens the seals. It relates to history. The fourth one is in Philippians. Different cosmology, different worldview. In which Adam is seen as the representative of the human race. And, of course, the picture is that Adam grasped that equality with God. And that's the human predicament, that he would have been like God. And the contrast with us, with Christ, is not a more successful or an unfallen Adam. It's not a return to Eden, but the willing self-emptying. The word here is kenosis, that Christ emptied himself. The one who had divine sonship, He's able to grasp equality with God. He is God. He's able to identify himself rather with with humanity. To die the death of a criminal outside the city. Paul says in Philippians, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, 
did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. So the dramatic reversal of the kenosis. He has been divinely exalted, given the name of the Lord, which, in fact, all of the cosmos shall one day acknowledge. So the ground, and we're, you know, this is the process, the writer of Hebrews, that Paul is describing. The ground for this exaltation is the free willingness of his humiliation. The low point of the humiliation is not simply entering humanity, but it's dying on a cross. So all things then will be brought into subjection. Very similar in Hebrews and Philippians, that on the basis of his humanity, on the basis of his suffering, on the basis of his death, he's been exalted. The fifth place is in John. This is the last one. Uh, you know, the prologue to John, he seems to address people holding to a kind of proto-Gnostic. Gnosticism, we've talked about, is this idea that the material world is evil and the spiritual world is, you know, completely available only in the mind. And there's a ladder of mediating entities stretching from God to earth, very similar to the Colossian heresy. The ladder's function is as much to hold the world apart. You know, heaven and earth are held apart. It's as much to do that as to connect them. And the pure, ineffable divinity at the top, that is, he's not approachable, wards off particularity, contingency, you know, the, the history of this world, by interposing the logos. The word is the means of emanation. And then John breaks all the rules. He said, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was Jesus. The Logos was divine. The Logos has become incarnate. At the bottom of the ladder, the Logos is claimed to be equal with God. Not merely the first of many emanations, uh, but... There is no more ladder. He crushes the ladder. He does away with the cosmology. It's been smashed. Its language has been seized and used for a different message. No longer does the concept of logos solve a problem of, you know, that was their religion, reconciling the eternal with the temporal. It proclaims identification, incarnation, drawing all who believe into the power of becoming God's children by his mighty powerful word. Hebrews is beginning in a very similar place. So John systematically sets forth the broadest of dualisms, not to affirm them, but to undo them, to show that their antagonism is emptied, to show how Christ has defeated this sort of identity through difference. So God is not only the creator, but the redeemer. The aim of God's redemptive activity, according to Miroslav Wolf, is to overcome these oppositional dualities. So in independent ways, an apostolic writer, you know, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, uh, the, John, they've responded to the challenge of this cosmic vision, and each time in completely different vocabulary, 
Colossians, Philippians, Hebrews, John, Revelation. They've shown how Christ breaks into this structure. They all make the same moves. We could call it a deep structure that we encounter in the New Testament. And we need to get a handle on this deep structure to challenge the secular modernist worldview that we're confronted with. The writer in each instance becomes quite at home. He understands the language of the world. He uses its its language and he faces its question. The second thing, that instead of fitting Jesus' message into that world, into that cosmic vision, the writer places Jesus above the cosmos. He's in charge of it. The third thing, that there is in, in, in each case a powerful concentration upon being rejected, suffering in human form beneath the cosmic hierarchy. And that's what accredits Christ's lordship. The fourth thing, that instead of salvation constituting our integration into a salvation system which the cosmos holds out you know, ready for us through ritual or initiation or through you know, ecstatic vision, what we are called to enter into is the self-emptying of the Son. And only by that path, by the path of suffering, death, and resurrection... The resurrection of the sun, can we, can we too then conquer these worlds? Behind The fifth thing, behind the cosmic victory, enabling it, there is a firm, without parallel, in, in I think the uh, Gospels, what later confession called pre-existence. That is, in the beginning, you know, here is the one who existed before creation. He's essentially... He's co-essential with the Father. He possesses the image of God in the very image of God, the writer of Hebrews says. And still there is the participation of the Son in creation, in God's providence worked out in the world. The sixth thing, the last thing, the writer and the readers of these messages share by faith in all that this victory means. This, This is what it means to be a Christian. We have this faith that is taken up and challenges and overcomes the cosmic you know, world views that we face. Brothers and sisters, saints who share in the heavenly call, contemplate Jesus, apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful in God's house. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful over God's house of his son, We are his household as we hold fast our confidence and pride in our hope. He's overturning Judaism through Judaism. So a handful of Messianic Jews moving beyond the defenses of their somewhat separate society attack the intellectual bastions of the majority culture. They do not contextualize their message by clothing it in the categories the world held ready. Instead, they seized these categories. They hammered them into new shapes and turned these cosmologies on their head with Jesus at the bottom crucified as a common criminal and at the top the pre-existent Son and Creator. And the church is His instrument to do this work 
of overturning cosmologies and worldviews today. Let's sing our hymn again.